Welcome to Batty to Batty, a monthly podcast by For the Breast of Us, the first breast cancer community for all women of color, where we share real-life experiences, information, and education to help you live your best life after a breast cancer diagnosis. Welcome to Batty to Batty. Welcome to Batty to Batty. Hey baddies, this is Batty Ambassador Shang Rong Lee from the DMV area. I'm a wife, mother of two boys, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2017 with stage 2B invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 43. Are you guys ready? Let's get started. Hey baddies, I'm Jenny, the OG Flatty Batty Ambassador, Asian Batty, Asian batty. and resident funny lady over here for the rest of us. I was diagnosed in 2019 at the age of 41 with stage one invasive ductal carcinoma and underwent a bilateral mastectomy without breast mound reconstruction and some chemo and radiation. I'm coming to you from colorful Colorado, ready to chat with some baddies. Hey everybody. My name is Ginny and I am a breast cancer thriver survivor and a flatty baddie Asian baddie ambassador with For the Breast of Us. I'm here with fellow baddie ambassador Shane Rong, along with a huge group of other survivors and thrivers. And since it's AAPI Heritage Month, we are highlighting AAPI survivors and thrivers. Those that don't know, AAPI is Asian American and Pacific Islander. Uh, since this is a large group, we do want to get through some introductions, but let's go ahead and start with um, myself and my own ethnic background. I am actually half and half, like I like to say. Um, my father is uh, European white and my mother is Korean. Um, I identify as Korean because that's what I look like. Um, I am, was diagnosed in 2019 with uh, stage one breast cancer and I have been cancer free and out of treatment for a couple of years now. Uh, Shang Rong, why don't we start with you? Sure. So my both of my parents are Taiwanese, um, and uh, it's, which is a small island off of China. Not many people know that. And um, I'm also a breast cancer ambassador. And um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2017 with invasive ductal carcinoma, um, and been in remission for September coming up will be five years. All right, so I'll move it on to, I'm going to see who's on my screen here. So I'm going to start with Layla, because she's at the top of my screen. <laughs> Hi, I'm, it's actually Laya. Oh, I'm um, sorry, Laya. That's okay. We, we um, My family is from the Philippines. Um, that's my ethnic background. Laya means uh, freedom in Tagalog. Oh. Um, my parents immigrated to America. Um, so I'm first generation. Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, stage two breast cancer at the age of 40. Um, and I also have my five year anniversary coming up in September. Yay. <laughs> 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 All 
good. Thanks, Laya. Thank um, you. Let's move, let's move it along. Jess, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Jess. I was diagnosed in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. Best Ooh. timing ever. Um, yeah, with stage three breast cancer. My background is Japanese American. I'm fourth generation, if that means anything to our listeners and to you guys. It, what it really means is my grandparents, all four of them were born in America, and none of my parents speak our original language anymore. So I'm I'm super American, <laughs> um, but honestly, we all are, whether you're okay. new or not. Uh, so I just mm -hmm. wanted to say, add that little bit. Oh, also, I'm from Hawaii, so I'm not a Pacific Islander, uh, but I am a Hawaii local. Thanks, Jess. How about let's go with Chandra? And I think she's our only Canadian today. Oh, no, no, never mind. Oh. We have two Canadians. <laughs> I apologize. All right, go ahead. Hi, so um, my name is Chandra, and I actually am American. I live in Texas. Um, what, what do I, I know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, my ethnic background is Hmong, um, which is a very small Asian ethnic minority. So my parents are from the mountains of Laos in Southeast Asia. Um, I'm technically a refugee. I was born in a refugee camp and came over to America when I was less than a year old. I was diagnosed with DCIS in my left breast in May of 2018. So this is my four-year diagnosis anniversary month. And I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> That's awesome, Chandra. Um, how, how about we go to Roshni? Hi, uh, my name is Roshni. Um, that's the Americanized version. My, the actual, actual pronunciation is Roshni. Um, and I am first generation um, American. My parents are from Suriname. Suriname is a country in South America. My ancestors were taken from India. Um, as indentured servants to Suriname uh, by the Dutch. And so my parents speak Hindi and also Dutch. Um, in 2019, I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer at the age of 22. Um, and I really uh, love to speak about being Asian American because we're often left out of the breast cancer conversation. So I'm happy to be here. And we're happy to have you. Thank you, Roshni. And then finally, we've got Dr. Simran. And hopefully I'm saying it correctly. It's funny because I'm Instagram friends with her. I see her. I talk about her all the time, but I don't you, know if I'm ever You nailed it. it right. You nailed it, awesome. Simran. Um, and my name means to meditate. Um, so I am 34. I am a first generation Canadian born South Asian. Um, my mom was born in New Delhi, India. Um, we are Punjabi. And my dad was actually born in Trinidad, but he's also Punjabi. My grandfather was in the Indian diplomat, so he traveled a lot. So um, I have a very strong family history of breast cancer. My mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. Um, I actually have not had cancer, but I have uh, the BRCA1 genetic mutation. I found out about eight years ago when I was 26. And after about well, I guess eight years, well, several years of screening. I, in 2020, I ended up having a bilateral mastectomy 
um, with aesthetic flat closure, so no reconstruction for me, um, and a total hysterectomy at the same time, putting me into surgical menopause. So I am super excited to be here because like Rush said, I think we just don't talk about it enough um, in the South Asian community and any chance I get to sp speak about it, um, I'm happy to. Awesome. And that rounds out our panel today. Thank you everyone for introducing yourself. Um, Shingrong, you wanna kick us off with a first round of discussion? Um, well, I would like to start with Dr. Simran. Uh, when you uh, discovered that you had the BRCA gene mutation, um, how did that happen? If you can go into uh, more detail about it. Yeah, so my mom was first diagnosed at the age of 33. I was 13. Um, and at that time, she had genetic testing and it was negative. Um, several years later, um, in 2014, her older sister was diagnosed with a form of ovarian cancer. And by that time, I was a second year medical resident um, and just kind of knew a lot more than I did at 13. Um, and so encouraged her to get genetic testing again. Um, and just a side note, um, there's advances in genetic testing every like, well, all the time. So if you have a very strong family history and you know, the genetic testing was negative in your family. I would encourage you to think about it if it's been more than five years um, to consider getting tested again because they're discovering new genes all the time. Um, so that's basically what happened in my mom's case. And um, so she ended up finding out she was a BRCA1 genetic mutation carrier. Um, shortly after that, she ended up getting a total hysterectomy. Um, and then about a year later, I was 26 um, and I decided to get tested. Uh, actually, just before I was about to get married, because um, I thought I, I thought it would only be fair to uh, make sure my future husband kind of knew what he was getting into. <laughs> Did you find um, that your when you made the decision to have the prophylactic mastectomy and the hysterectomy? Did you have any family pressure pushing you back from making that decision? <sighs> oh man, this is like such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> um, the short answer is yes, but the the other thing is, is that I didn't really seek any opinions from my extended family because I knew what I was going to receive and I wasn't ready for that, mm -hmm. knowing that I was going to get surgery. Like I already knew as soon as I found out about my mutation. And a little bit of backstory for me, the reason for me, it was always like when I'm going to get can uh, the surgeries and not if, um, it's because I'm a palliative care physician. So what I do for a living is I care for people with serious illness, mostly cancer at the end of life. And so I've seen a lot of young women pass away from cancer. And, and then with my mom's history, it was a no brainer for me, um, given this blessing really is what I call it. Um, and so for me, it was mostly like, it, a lot of intimate conversations with my husband, especially the fact that I was choosing not to have reconstruction and then also deciding to put myself into menopause at 33. Um, and then my parents did did say like, are you sure you don't wanna get reconstruction? Like they were worried about that. Um, my parents ended up getting divorced um, a few years after my mom's cancer. Um, and now looking back, I can see that there was probably a lot of reasons that were related to like kind of just 
post chemo complications and things that again were just not talked about and my mom didn't know what it meant to be in menopause and what that would do to her sex life and you know all the things that we just don't talk about um and so for me i was extremely vocal with my husband about what the best case and worst case scenarios would be and then same with my parents i just told them like this is why i'm doing what i'm doing and in the end they supported me again i didn't ask them permission but they supported me um and then everyone else i just I left them out um, of my decision making. <laughs> yeah, that that's smart. That, that that helps with the mental health for sure. And oh yeah, uh, being vocal with your husband, and he's he still married you. That's, that's <laughs> well, again, he's, he's a good one. So then. He, well, so yeah. he's an he's an ICU doctor. So we okay. both deal with a lot of end of life. And so for wow. us, what's most important in life is very clear, and that was. For our children to have a mother. Um, he loves me just as much without boobs and without ovaries as he did before. Um, and actually, sex is better than it was before. So I, I don't think he has anything Ooh. to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to circle back around. We'll need some tips. Maybe we'll do that towards the end of the discussion. <laughs> um, I did see a lot of heads nodding when you were talking about how you knew what you were going to hear from your family as soon as you made your decision. Um, is there anyone else that kind of wants to share? Maybe you have a similar experience or different. Roshni, I see you I'll pretty enthusiastically something. nodding there. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, as I, I'm an only child um, and I'm Indian. And so a, a lot of people had comments and, you know, what I should do and what I shouldn't do and who I should be listening to and wanting to get me um, at their doctors versus my already established medical team were asking me for my, um, you know, samples, my diagnosis um, papers, my results and stuff like that, just so they can like, I, I know that it was coming from a good place, but I also, it was very invasive and I also was very lost on I mean, I was 22. I didn't know what I was doing. And to hear all these people have their voice and their opinions was kind of messing with what my gut told me. My gut told me, okay, I have my medical team. I like my oncologist. She specializes in triple negative. I love my surgeon. Um, and I want to get treated in New York. Uh, that was where, like where I wanted to be and where I felt comfortable being. Uh, but then, you know, you have distant family members family members saying, you know, questioning chemo or questioning the fact that you're eating um, a birthday cake because they have the false notion that oh. sugar feeds cancer. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I wish I took the same approach as Simran. I did not. I just decided to be vocal. I just posted on Instagram that I got diagnosed with cancer because I just didn't, I felt very alone being young and also um, Asian. So um, I just posted and everyone was calling my parents and I, I, I only regret doing it because I didn't want them to have to also answer to people because uh, they're my parents. So I'm trying to protect them, but I needed to be vocal about it because I couldn't just sit here with my thoughts about being diagnosed and not say something to someone. But um, yeah, people don't really um, hold back when you're diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I feel like people just need to understand that they're not going through it. 
the person who just got diagnosed is and they need more support versus just talking behind our backs. Yeah. I find that with a lot of Asian families, you know, first generation um, and immigrant families, there's a lot of collective decision-making, like the family is going to make this decision. Um, whereas when you're going through <coughs> cancer or any kind of medical crisis, like this is, this is your decision and you don't necessarily want all that noise. That's what I would say in the back. That was what I thought anyway. Um, Laya, you had something yeah. you wanted to say? Yeah. Um, I wanted to say I actually had the opposite. Um, happened to me, I think one of the things, the silver lining of cancer, you know, going through this, it, 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 it gave me my voice and helped me to find who I truly am. Um, for my diagnosis, I had, when I say the opposite is my parents were not there for me um, because my grand, my grandmother, my mother's mother um, was a child when, um, the Philippines was occupied by the Japanese. And my mother's, the trauma that my family has seen has passed down to my mother and my mother has passed it down to me. So that abandonment and that inability to, the skills to not talk about what happened and how to be there for your loved ones, um, I didn't have that. Um, I had to be the parent. Um, and so I kind of really took control of it. My parents are there. Don't get me wrong. I love my parents to death. They are there for me um, through the process afterwards. But I think it was the initial diagnosis. Oh, you have cancer? Oh, well, you know, it, you know, I learned a lot about how other people deal with trauma. When somebody, when you are diagnosed, like, they didn't know how to be there for me. So then they were not there. So I had to take control of the situation. Thank God I had an amazing therapist at the time um, who told me that this was my moment to take control. Um, and you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you feel a loss of control because you can't control your health. Um, and so selecting my team, selecting what I call the unicorn tribe, um, who was there for me through the entire process, um, I think if I didn't have that wisdom that my that my that my therapist gave me, I don't know how I would fare mentally afterwards. But I think everything just kind of happened and cracked open the way it was supposed to. So it's kind of led me back to um, why I'm here in Vietnam, you know, bringing me closer to my motherland. Um, I'm just really exploring myself and my family history and the history of the Philippines and the colonization and destruction of colonization. I had the um, similar reaction uh, experience as well um, with my parents uh, being Taiwanese. Um, I don't have a close relationship with them and the trauma they had experienced growing up, they did not talk with me. So um, my parents immigrated to the US, so I'm first generation, my sister and I, and um, they're not, they don't show emotions um they don't say i love you um they, they just express their love in different ways so um when i told my mom that i was diagnosed with breast cancer she didn't really say much i talked to her over the phone and um she said that 
I'm really busy and I have a lot of work to do. And and that was it. And, you know, I wasn't surprised. I was upset, but I wasn't surprised. I was, you know, when I was diagnosed, I was 43. I married, I have two children and my husband is a physician. So uh, he was my backbone throughout the, um, the journey. And, um, and then my sister, um, she's five years younger than me. She didn't really respond either. So, um, I mean, for her, she was just quiet. She didn't really say much. And, you know, first I got really mad because I'm like, this is my mm-hmm. sister, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and um, but then, you know, I thought about it. I said, okay, you know, this is how we were raised. We didn't really connect well as we were growing up either. So um, for me, finding that support system I had that with my husband and my two boys who were 10 and five years old at the time. Um, my 10 year old even had to help me with uh, right after my mastectomy, when you know when you have the wrap around, he had to help me put it back on after I took my shower and help me start to take it off. So I don't know like how he'll be as an adult, but um, he seems to be okay so far. It's been so years. Speaking of generational trauma. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, then my kid, and my younger one was five at the time. And so when he saw my drains, in the bathroom, he just looked at me and ran out. So, oh, I bet. So, um, oh. But, you know, my husband was working and he was the mm-hmm. one with the income. And being a physician at that time, he was um, an, an ER doctor. So his job was demanding. Mm-hmm. And so he was like split in half, like literally split in half. So I still owe him, um, I don't know a retreat somewhere where he can be gone and not be seen for days or months. I don't know where he can just like somehow, you know, recuperate from this. So, um, yeah, having that lack of family support does, um, I guess it does, uh, reinforce that. But then again, like Layla, what you're saying about leaning into your, um, into yourself and um, your identity. Um, Yeah, I've been doing that as well. I've been more conscious about being Taiwanese and what does that mean? Um, Yeah. And and that being, you know, bananas. (laughs) Being a banana, (laughs) yellow on the outside, white on the inside. (laughs) Can I add to that, Shang-Yang? I I let um, what you were saying about our stories, I think that's what you said, I'd heard something a while, like a few, two years ago or something like that, listening to a Filipino American podcast. And they talked a lot about um, what, what is a Filipino American and what does, what does that look like, right? Because there is no quote unquote definition and that we are the definition and we are the history of it. And if we don't write it down, we will forever be erased. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really struck me and has never left me to know that we've already been tried to be erased, right? And then if we don't write these stories down, the stories that we're all telling right now, who is going to know about it? Mm-hmm. That's so That's true. Right. That's so true. I would like to um, kind of circle back around when we were talking about the generational trauma. Um, and it, Chandra, your story is interesting because you were a refugee. Do you think that that 
had an impact on how your family reacted when when you told them they had cancer or how you chose to share the story? Yeah, so I wanted to, exactly want to touch touch um, on that when I think one of our themes is um, Jenny, what you said about Asians don't get breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So when I was diagnosed um, four years ago this month at age of 38, um, because my diagnosis was DCIS, I think like every provider that I talked with said that was the best kind of breast cancer to get. Which, uh, I hate that. You know, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, my breast surgeon said the same thing. Yeah. Well, then they should get it then if they. Well, really hey. Yeah, you can have it. <laughs> yeah. So I, when I was diagnosed, and um, I do have a good close relationship with my mom. Um, uh, so I grew up in a single parent household, and so when I decided to share with her. Um, she, the very first thing that she told me was what Hmong people don't get cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, <laughs> but thankfully she was very supportive. Um, I was fortunate to have a supportive family. Um, and my genetics testing. So, um, Dr. Samran, you mentioned genetics testing. Um, mine did go so well in terms of the family background um, and, you know, family history. Because as Hmong people growing up, you know, in the mountains of Laos, um, you didn't have running water. So, you know, of course you're not gonna have medical, documented medical records of every family member. You're not gonna have that history. That is just the, the harsh reality. And so for my genetics testing, um, all of the family history, you know, and family background to me was invalid because I didn't know at what age my, you know, uncle passed away and from what. Um, we just didn't have that. And so that was, I think, the most frustrating part of my my whole cancer journey is, is the genetics testing. Um, and then in terms of, you know, just talking with family. I'm fortunate. I have a loving, large loving family. And so I told everybody. Um, And I don't think I allowed anybody to dictate decisions for me. I'm also sort of the black sheep of the family where I'm very independent. Um, Monk culture is very family oriented. You've got large clans. um, And it's also very patriarchal. And I already knew that. Yeah, I already knew I was going to make the best decisions for myself and for my body. Um, and so, again, with DCIS and all the providers, like, oh, that's the best kind of breast cancer to have. I went with a conservative route of um, lumpectomy, anticipated radiation, and um, tamoxifen for the hormone therapy. But I had multi, multiple spots of DCIS. And so when my breast surgeon recommended to get a mastectomy, I had already made the decision. Worst case scenario, I, I lose both my breasts. Just take them both. And um, some people were surprised by my decision, um, especially with the stage zero. But I'm really thankful I made that decision to have a bilateral mastectomy. And I'm a very proud flatty. I'm a short chunky. 
So I always I try to advocate for, you know, hey, bigger BMI girls, we deserve a good flat closure. We deserve a yeah. good aesthetic flat closure. Don't leave yeah. us with extra skin. Um, yes. So I'm a very. Uh oh. Uh oh. She froze. Lost her. Uh oh. Yeah. Oh, oh no. Maybe she'll come back in. Uh, we have quite a few flatties here. I'll add um, on to what Chandra was saying, though. Like, she, it, mm -hmm. it's kind of funny because she's like, you know, in the mountains of Laos, they don't have medical records. But even in India, where, you know, they have pretty good medical care, you know, cancer dates back to my great grandmother. So just on my mom's side of the family, there's at least eight or nine women. And like throughout the years, uh, either breast or ovarian cancer. And throughout the years, you just kind of heard like my mom's, this cousin got diagnosed with something and this yeah. aunt died of something in her stomach. And like, again, I was young, so I never really put the pieces together. And then I started piecemealing it together after I got my genetics uh, diagnosis. And it was always kind of, again, I saw it with my mom, like she dealt with cancer behind closed doors, right? Like she mm -hmm. was diagnosed at eight, uh, she was diagnosed at 33, but she moved to Canada when she was 18. And she basically lived with my dad and his family longer than she lived with her own family. So her whole family was in India when she was diagnosed. So my dad was there as much as I think he knew how to be, but he didn't really know how. And then my, you know, her in-laws were in-laws. Like they, they didn't mm -hmm. give her the love and support that she would have gotten, I think, from her family. But then again, like I, I don't remember her family really being there for her either. So when you talk about generational trauma, like, she broke that for me. Like when I found mm -hmm. out um, about my mutation and when I told her I was going to get, you know, these surgeries and everything, like, I think she gave me everything she wished she had. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And mm -hmm. I like to Roche's point, like I went the I was pretty quiet. I didn't share my diagnosis when I found out about it, but I was also in the middle of residency. So I didn't get onto social media until the pandemic in 2020, which and then I started looking for community. And that's how I found all of you beautiful people. And um, and I, but I was so vocal and she was nothing but but supportive there. But I think the family history piece like for most of us, like if you're a first generation or more, like we don't, we just don't have them because the, the people that are in our home countries don't even tell anyone that they have cancer because we don't use the C word. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where all the cultural yeah. taboos and like, mm -hmm. there's something wrong with you if you have cancer, well, you know, and it's, all of that. Yep. Yeah. It's a woman's yeah. issue, right? So yeah. a lot of us come from patriarchal culture so it's just they died from a woman's issue and breasts breasts equals sex and we talk about mm -hmm. sex so we can't talk about any of this it's very taboo um right. and i don't obviously that's not exclusive to to asian culture and families but i feel like it's pretty prevalent I yeah saying. i mean i honestly don't even know how <laughs> yes. anyone outside of my husband and my parents feel about me being flat chested like i don't know um mm -hmm no one's and again I'm, I'm pretty vocal so no one's i guess had the guts to say anything to say me. anything um, yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm a doctor so that helps right like i can quote yeah. them the science and that's that's just the way it is so that's probably why they don't yeah. say anything <laughs> yeah because yeah. yeah, so my, <laughs> my mother said one thing to me asking if i wanted reconstruction <laughs> and i explained to her for me i just don't want to have the additional surgeries i'm happy with 
how I am. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. Um, but within Korean culture, it's very like there's a lot of superficiality. It's very appearance driven. So there is kind of that, like, if we're going out to the Korean church, for example, it's like, why don't you put a little, you know, put your boobs in or something. You know, she does, she is pretty image conscious. Like, she supports me in my decisions, but you can tell she's not as comfortable when she's with her people, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I could add to what you said and what Timurin said, when I was getting uh, genetic testing after I was diagnosed, my parents were both like just very like tense and anxious and um, I ended up being negative for BRCA, but they took it to heart that if I had a genetic uh, defect, like a genetic um, composition to cancer, that there was like, they did something wrong. They were both like, because there is some breast cancer on my dad's side, but uh, they didn't find any link. But still, you know, they had that anxiety. They felt like awful that their genetics could cause me to get cancer when, you know, that's not their fault. Um, Genetics are um, science and its own thing. Mm -hmm. It's not like something you conjure up and you get. Um, So when I was doing genetic testing. Oh, sorry. You keep You go, Jenny. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say it is interesting from because I've read some recent statistics about, you know, Asians don't get cancer. Well, we do, we have fairly relatively low breast cancer rates, but then you look at first generation Asian women and recent immigrants and the cancer numbers are higher, Um, which, you know, it, it, it raises questions. There's something about living in this country that gives us higher breast cancer rates than our counterparts in our, you know, native countries as well. Um, so there, obviously there's more than a genetic component, but, um. mm-hmm. yeah, but it's, it's like you, uh, with the genetic testing, it's like an answer for you or like you can piece the mm-hmm. things together, but you need your family and the history to kind of, to help you do that. And when you don't have that support it, and you go to the doctor and they're like, Oh, what about your uncle? What about this? And you're like, I don't, I don't know how to answer your question. Yeah, I had that uh, issue, but so I'm vocal um, with my diagnosis, and I tell my my cousins and my um, aunts and uncles what what's been going on with me, and they just look at me with a blank face. So <laughs> I feel like a black sheep, but I know that from this experience how important it is to know, um, you know, within your immediate family and your extended family what that looks like. So uh, as far as I know, there is no family history of breast cancer, but that doesn't matter. 70% of women who are diagnosed, it's not family history anyways. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now I'm the history. You're the history. Yeah, that's true. Now now we're the history. Yes. Um, And uh, Rushni, right? Is that the correct way to pronounce it? Rushni, yeah. Yeah, Rushni. So... For you being young at 22, how does that, how was that for you um, as an Indian woman um, at 22 uh, with your peers talking about yeah. it? With my peers, um, it was very difficult because we, it was a year after graduating college, uh, you know, we were in our first jobs, everyone is going out 
to bars and, you know, having the time of their life in New York. And I was doing the same thing up until I got diagnosed and that all had to be pulled back. And I had to figure out how to navigate our wonderful healthcare system and talk to insurance companies. And my friends weren't, didn't have to do that. And I felt alone in it because I'm 20, I was 22. Yeah. Is there what? anybody out there? Like, what? I don't. I just had to figure out my taxes too. I was like, okay, what am I going to do wrong? The taxes or my cancer stuff? Like, which one is going to mess up first? Ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's hard. Um, they would ask me to like go out with them, and I would sometimes say no because it's my like white white blood count was low, or you know, I was bald too. I. Um, I wasn't used to being bald. I had hair all my life. And so being bald for me was a very conflicting thing because as an Indian woman, you're known for your hair. You're known for your long hair. And mm -hmm. when I lost my hair, I felt like I lost a piece of me. I felt like I lost my identity. Um, and um, I was then, you know, trying to figure out who I am as like on my own separate from my parents because as um, a first generation, you're figuring things out on your own, but then you also have to help your parents and they sometimes tag along in things that you try to do. But I wanted to try to figure out who I was without my hair. Um, I wanted to authentically be Roshni and, you know, spread my naming light to so spread light about my diagnosis, about uh, what has happened to me and empower other young uh, women of color, especially Asian women, to find their voice um, mm -hmm. and speak up for yourself. And yeah, that's something that I'm very passionate about because we're always, we're, people think that we're quiet, but I'm like, I'm not quiet. No! I will tell you how it is. And I, will, I am so not quiet. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I feel like not about all minority, damn it. <laughs> yes. yes. Isn't that one of the greatest blessings of being born in this country, though, or America or Canada? Or, you know, like we are able to use our voice. I feel like back home in India, when my cousins still try to speak, they're they're told very clearly what not or to do. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I think that's that's a beautiful blessing that we all we all have. Yeah, that's true. Agree. So we haven't heard from Jess yet in this conversation. And she's our super American <laughs> Asian girl. <laughs> what, how, how was it when you took up to your parents or shared with your family? How did you do it and how did they react? Uh, well, I have two families. I grew up in Hawaii with my single parent mom, just the two of us. We're very close. And um, she was devastated and we have a wonderful relationship. And she wanted to be here for me, but it was February, 2020. And it was the mm -hmm. beginning of the pandemic. So, and she's older, so she could not travel to see me. So I had to go through all my treatment without her and not see her for you know two years. And that was really hard. Um, wow, that is hard. However, I'm living in California with the other half of my family. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was born. So I have this wonderful other family that's a mix of Japanese, um, Mexican, and Filipino. And they're all here. I have two sisters with my dad. Oh my God, you guys have the best food at the cookouts. <laughs> There's great food, yes. <laughs> yes, no, really, yeah. Um, we have we have all the food is what we're saying. Yeah. Um, and you know, this, this family is very big. Again, I have two sisters on this side and we're all very close as well. So I had tons of support, that was great. But, you know, I'm, so I was diagnosed at 43. 
Uh, I'm 45 now and I don't have kids and I'm not married, though I do have a partner. Um, and one of the choices I had to make quickly was besides all the treatment options, of course, it was extra things I could do. And my cancer was 100% uh, hormone positive. So I decided to remove my ovaries and fallopian tubes. So I had a bilateral salpingo ophorectomy. Um, and that was uh, elective, right? Like I chose to do it to really reduce my chances of more cancer and cancer spreading. But it was still a shock to a lot of people, I think, in my family, because that's it's it just it's like something extra you're doing when you already are doing surgeries and chemo and radiation and you're doing choosing to do more like are you crazy and you can't have kids but i was already 43 and i'm already established that kids were not for me and yet there was still that are you sure because you can't change it so mm -hmm. i think a lot of people will deal with that at any age i think i got off lucky because i was older so it kind of became a little bit of an easier convincing other people which is annoying that you have to convince other people, yeah. but that's something that I think yeah. we all have already just talked about that the moment you start sharing your decisions, you either have to convince them along with you or hear their opinions nonstop. <laughs> Cause sometimes even just walking away doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there was some of that, um, but I'm doing good now. I'm NED. I'm happy where I am. I'm still technically in, in active treatment though. I'm done with the big major stuff, but I'm on a specific drug that's very strong. So I'm, considered active treatment for one more year. It's called Verzenio. Um, but after that, then I'll be uh, kind of like everyone else. And I'm really happy about that. I, I feel lucky that I, I've had such good support. Again, living with family on this side, a big extended family that wanted to support me was great. It was just the pandemic. So I couldn't see half yeah. of them. You know, no one could go with you to the hospital. When it was time for surgery, someone had to drop you off at the curb and you just walked yourself in, you know, oh, that God. kind of stuff, right? No, no <sighs> sitting, no, nobody hanging out with your chemo, no meal train because nobody could find groceries to cook for their own families, much less cook for mm. you, that kind of stuff. So I think that was a little hard, but that was also not the time to complain because cancer <laughs> may not have been the worst thing that other people were going through at the time. So it was just a weird time, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of that kind of I think you guys all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That that sort of um, uh, transitions us into mental health, which I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, were I'm curious if you were offered so, a, a help mental health at all through your cancer journey, or I like to say cancer situation. I don't like the word journey. I don't like the so, word journey either. Yeah, so during your <laughs> active cancer situation, um, were you offered mental health services? Myself, I was not, I had to reach out for it. And I, I feel like it's, it's been that way my whole life because the person next to me, the white lady next to me has the social worker that comes and talks to her. The other white lady next to me has the nutritionist that comes and talks to her. Me being the young looking Asian person, I don't look like I'm traumatized. That doesn't look like on my face, even though like mentally I'm losing my damn mind. Can anyone else relate? Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember the day I booked my mastectomy. Um, like it's, it's like a vivid memory. I was sitting in my car and I, my hands were all sweaty and I was like, holy shit, I'm actually doing this. Um, and it was just the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I had no idea what I was about to see over the next several months, which like Jess said, was probably the most traumatic situations I've ever seen in my career as a physician. And um, 
I remember calling my my breast surgeon's office asking for the social worker and um, and this I had just come from an appointment um, to see the plastic surgeon. I had already decided I didn't want mastectomy, but like both breast surgeons I saw insisted I see two different plastic surgeons just to be sure, which makes sense. But the first one was a total. I, I don't think I'm allowed to swear, but um, go ahead. The, uh, yeah, yeah. Bag. Total go ahead. bag. Total bag. <laughs> I mean, I walked in. He's like, "You're young. You're 30. You're beautiful. Like, yeah, direct to implant. That's what we're doing." And that's like all he said. I was like, oh. "Hey, I'm not. I'm not even dealing with this." So I went to another whole team. I loved the breast surgeon. He was awesome. He asked me to see another plastic surgeon. I saw her. Thought she was female. Thought she would be more accepting of my decision, um, ended up telling me I was going to be psychologically scarred if I went flat. Legit. Those are the words she told me, knowing oh, I'm a doctor, wow. What? knowing oh. I'm a doctor. And I remember walking out of there with my husband <laughs> in tears, like in tears. Right. Wow. And I'm sitting in the, in my car and I'm calling my breast surgeon's office. Um, I get a hold of the social worker and I'm like, Hey, do you, I just like scheduled all this and this is what just happened. I told her and she was so cold. And just so you guys get a point of reference, like I'm a palliative care doctor. Like I sit with people in like the toughest emotions and feelings and, you know, like just with so much authenticity and empathy, I like listen and I've been doing this for like seven years. And I thought for once I was going to get that back. And like the medical system slapped me in the face. Like I can't wow. even imagine what it's like to be a non physician in this place, um, which is why I wow. love these communities. And I love to hear your voices so that I can, advocate more to teach my people how to talk to people, you know? Um, but I called the social worker and I was like, Hey, do you have a counselor or someone I can talk to? And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm 32. I just scheduled my mastectomy. Like it's preventative and I'm getting a hysterectomy. Like, is there someone I can talk to about what I'm about to go through? And she's like, I I'm not sure what you want to talk about. And I was, just, I was, I was what? just like, floored. Oh I was floored. Wow. Oh, wow. So wow. it ended up working out because our hospital made made us all see psychologists um, because of the pandemic, because of what we were seeing. So I ended up yeah. talking mm -hmm. to her about my because I had my mastectomy and hysterectomy in the middle of the pandemic. So I ended up talking to her about both things that I was going through. <laughs> so it worked out. But yeah, double duty yeah. works. Yeah, it was crazy, man. Wow. So. Um, I, I'm in healthcare too, and I just wanted to chime in that, you know, I think for being in that setting, we're really good at advocating for others. And then when we get hit with something medical, I always feel like I forget everything that I advocate for others, that I help for others. And so until I am done with that visit or until I'm, you know, finished and I'm removed you know, from that particular scenario, then I can process and say, oh shit, I need to follow up on this. I need to ask about that. Um, so I'm a firm believer in being a fellow advocate. So if any one of my local friends, local breast cancer patients here are like, hey, I'm getting, you know, an MRI or I'm getting something done, can you come with me? Absolutely, I will be there for you. And I have gone with friends I write down the notes like this tech came in at 10 13 a.m and the tech administered this and then you were wheeled back to the procedure room at 11 a.m 
So I document that whole timeline and I give it to my friends because they need to be aware of what's going on. And I think that that's something that for me, like I know what to expect, I know what to do. And yet when you're on the patient side, it's like everything just, you know, leaves my brain. But as providers, like, you, yes, we know what to do and we, we know the signs. I'm not sure what you do, Chandra, but- Oh, like, I'm not clinical. I'm just- Oh, okay. But it's like, it's to you get a whole new appreciation of what it's like to be a patient. Like I feel like I had a fairly good understanding just because of what I do for a living. Um, and then my mom, like going through everything with my mom, but, um, holy wow. Like it is, it is so the things you deal with, like, like Rush said, like you're trying to, and I can't even imagine at 22 trying to deal with this, but like, you're trying to deal with like all the crap that's being hit in hit, like you're getting hit with like chemo and infertility, like fertility options and like all these things, let alone like having to deal with like insurance Death. and fighting with them about getting mm -hmm. coverage because you have like you know i i dealt with that like with my hormone replacement like they're like why do you need hormone replacement i'm like i'm in menopause like i need hormone replacement because i'm in menopause like i don't know what to tell you like it's crazy like i just got a whole new appreciation for what it's like to be a patient and i just i uh I love all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> we love you too. We yeah. love the doctors that understand, right? Yeah. And <laughs> Definitely. Oh, not the jerks yeah. that are like, you'll be scarred if you don't have breast reconstruction. That's not the first yeah. time I've heard that story. And I just, I want to know who these doctors, I just want to walk into that doctor's office and be like, yeah. it was, it was, you know, it was the cancer I, I that scarred that. me. I thought about mm -hmm. that, like sending a message or something just sometimes I feel like people should know the consequences of their actions. Um, and mm -hmm. I thought about that, especially since I, I ended up doing so well, I had, I had the blessing of making my decision uh, prophylactically. So that means I went through the risk, the benefits, like everything in my head, like I prepared for months for this. So psychologically, I was actually very good after surgery um, and better than I thought. And because the whole menopause thing worked out fairly well for me, I, I actually wanted to email her and be like, hey, actually, I don't regret anything. And this was like the best decision I ever made. Um, and I thought about it. But then I also thought, you know, again, as a palliative care physician, like I've seen people from all walks of life deal with all sorts of things from like the, you know, the 30 year old vegan who got cancer to like the 105 year old. Like I've seen mm -hmm. it all. Actually, I've even done pediatric palliative care. So I've, I've taken care of kids, too. And like I know that one day she's going to be in a situation where it's either her, she'll either she'll be the patient or someone she really loves will be the patient. And then she'll finally realize like holy crap, this is what it feels like to be on the other side and that's going to change her. So I don't think any of us telling our providers not to do something or do something is ever going to change them until they experience it themselves. So the best thing we can do is advocate for ourselves and leave and find another provider and a team that does get us, which I know a lot of women here have done. And I did. Um, so mm -hmm. that's just my two cents because I, I think the other side is true too in healthcare, like everyone and their mother is burnt out, like especially the last two years. I don't know anybody of my colleagues that don't wish that they could quit right now, including mm -hmm. people in my house. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, my <laughs> husband, my husband has burnt out through the pandemic. So yeah, I see you. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I've heard uh, Simran, your story and your background as well. 
Um, and it's, it's just so interesting. I, like, before I was diagnosed, I had this sense of healthcare system, the medical community was always there to help. No matter, like, what, they're always there to help. That's what my understanding of it was. Uh, when I was trying to get additional testing and diagnosed, um, I was dealing with a doctor who was Indian because I felt more comfortable going to an Indian doctor who was gaslighting me and telling me that, um, you know, I waited, okay, I, I waited three or two months uh, after I, saw, I noticed a lump to uh, ch- get it checked out, um, but I was in my 20s. I don't I didn't know who thinks yeah, like, I didn't that, know yeah. What, yeah. the lump the lump that was in my breast was going to be cancerous. I didn't know that. Um and so uh when I was fighting my first, you know, I had blood uh coming out of my nipple and she went to go do a breast exam and she she touched it and like some blood came out and she goes, "Oh, it's really bleeding." And I'm like in my head I'm like well, like I you made it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. And then when I was putting her to get me uh, earlier testing, because she want, I was, I went to see her in April. She wanted me to get testing end of May, June, and so I was yelling at her. And I said, "No, I need to know what's happening now. I need you to get me an appointment now." And she was like, "You already waited so long. You can wait a, a bit longer." Oh. And when she said that, I had like a split of a switch in my mind. And before Rush would not say anything and just and listen because i was taught you know don't uh disrespect your elders but or the doctor yeah or the doctor because they're higher they have a degree and higher um uh, status but i was like no i know what's happening there's something wrong i need you to i need you to do your job and get me additional testing and the day that she diagnosed me she started crying and was and was sad and i was angry at her because she made me feel like I was making it up. And why was she crying? I've yeah. I've always resonated. Yeah, I've always <laughs> resonated with your um with your diagnosis story because it's so similar to my mom's. Like my mom's Indian doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of pushed her off. Like she, she was thirty three. She felt this lump, and she pushed her off for like three months. Get this, guys. My mom was diagnosed in India, so we went to India for my grandparents' wedding anniversary. And she told her four older sisters and they were all like, oh, hell no, like this needs to be tested. They, she had two biopsies yeah. done in India and that's where she found out she had cancer. It was probably <laughs> cheaper there too. Well, she didn't, she didn't get treated there, but like, but yeah. yeah, the Canadian healthcare system has a lot of flaws, but she, her doctor pushed her off so much that she didn't even get diagnosed in Canada. Um, so that, yeah, I resonate with your story so much. I'm so sorry that you went through that. Um, cause you would think our kind will get us, but it's worse. (laughs) Yeah. Repeating the cycle. (laughs) Yeah. I I have an email saved to her. I have never sent it in three years and I always want to send it, but it's, I, I just want doctors to know that we're not just like people, our names are not just like on a char and, with our height and weight and our sexual orientation, we're actually human beings and we have, whatever you say to us affects us. We will hear what you're saying and relate it to our family members. Or if you're saying in front of our family members, it'll affect them too. It's not like you just leave the room and like that conversation's over. It's, it's, it has lasting effects what you say. 
yeah. Preach, girl. Yep. That <laughs> <laughs> circles back mm -hmm. to the whole mental health aspect mm -hmm. that Jenny opened the segment with. And just yeah. want to recognize that May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. So mm -hmm. I think that for our, you know, Asian cultures, mental health therapy is really something that we don't utilize enough. Mm -hmm. And we have so much generational trauma yeah. um, to unpack. Yeah. Um, but I also realize mental health providers are very scarce right now as well. Um, so it, it's a challenge all around. I think I was fortunate to have access to mental health therapists here in the central Texas region. Um, so I definitely realized got some therapy and that really helped me in my cancer situation. <laughs> um, yeah, I found that therapy really helped me understand because obviously my dad's white, but I'm dealing with my mother, mothers and daughters, right? And it really helped me understand her trauma and how that translates to me. So it, the, the whole generational trauma conversation, I think it's true. Um, and I wish I had done therapy earlier. I wish it was something that had been normalized in my family. I feel like it was seen as a moral failing if you went to therapy growing up. Like we didn't know, we didn't talk about it. Like it was just like, like at church, like, oh, did you hear so-and-so went to therapy? Like it was, it was a taboo thing. And I'm happy to see that it, it's, there are people who are being more vocal about it and talking about how helpful it is. Like I, I even my mom now, she's going to therapy. Yeah. I've <laughs> oh, been good. Therapy since I was since I'm since I was nineteen. It's def is taboo in my family, you know, in my culture to go to therapy. But I was in undergrad and I was deeply, deeply depressed, um, not functioning in society. It was my teacher who took me to go get help, and if it wasn't for her. Um, I would never. So since I saw the benefit of therapy at a young age, and I've been in therapy for over twenty something years, and um, it is the best thing you can do for yourself. That is the ultimate self care. Um, and I've always worked on trying to, to break that stigma because there is that oh you're crazy she's probably crazy something's wrong with her. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that meme that quotes like I'm in therapy because the people around me aren't there. <laughs> that is it. I've seen that. Um, but um, I, I, ha I coincidentally, I don't believe in coincidences anymore since my cancer, but the stars aligned for me with my story um, and my experience with my family and um, just all of that. And I ended up at Nibra, New York Bra. I don't know. They're all over Instagram now. Dr. Israeli, Dr. Bank, Dr. Light, they, um, they're, they're based out of Great Neck, New York. And in their practice, they have a patient empowerment program. And there's a woman named wow. Sherman who runs it. And the whole idea and, 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 and mission behind their practice is, is that they, they treat the whole patient. Right. And we cannot, mm -hmm. our bodies are, what Molly had said to me is that our bodies are amazing. Human bodies are amazing. But the one thing that you're going to need the most is up here. Mm -hmm. Right. The trauma yeah. that happens. Yeah. Right. And, and they gave us, we, they have monthly meat like this, like, I was like, how come nobody's talking about this? Like these, mm -hmm. this is what we need. Even though I knew, cause it was out in Great Neck and I was living out in Brooklyn. Like mm -hmm. I knew going there, nobody was gonna look like me. I knew that. But I also knew 
that the services they provided, like this patient empowerment program, was everything I needed. Yeah. And, and it just needs to be more like everywhere. We need this for women, for for, mm-hmm. for people with cancer to to process because it's it, it's never going to stop, right? It is right. a process. Yeah, right? it's going to have to work through it, right? Survivorship is yeah. hard. It's yes. hard. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be talked yeah. about. So yeah, I saw. Um, it's interesting, oh, Laya, what you just said um, about knowing that nobody else was going to look like you walking into the room. Yeah, um, we're here, a group of um, AAPI women um, representing, right? Because we don't see ourselves out there. Yeah, so, I tried uh, really yeah. hard to find a POC provider, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't find one. It was important, but it was, I did have a female surgeon, breast surgeon, that that was so important for me to have a female breast surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm curious though, like what, what was it like? Like for me anyway, once I first started on my breast cancer journey and I made an Instagram account and I had to find out what, who else has mm-hmm. breast cancer, right? trying to find other women that look like me. It was challenging. And that yeah. was one of the reasons why I started my social media account. I was the only Asian person, literally the only Asian person in my infusion center. Other than, oh wait, there was the, one of the oncologists was Asian. And that was yeah. it. Like I Googled Asian breast, breast cancer, or pe- women of color, breast mm-hmm. cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. The first woman who popped up was Erica Hart. I'm sure we all know who she is. So like, I just like yeah. follow her in and out. And then I did it again. I was like, Filipino slash Asian breast cancer survivor. <laughs> and I was like, shit. But oh, that's I right. found Nally. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, and she was Filipina. Exactly. Yeah. And that like broke me like to see and just everything that, you know, yeah. We lost her and all of that this year. And that was really hard um, for me. As we, we also, we, lo- we lost another um, black Filipina. I can't remember her name now. I just know everyone's Instagram handles, but we lost her too. She was a Filipina lady and she was, she was beautiful. It's been a hard year, guys. Yeah. We've lost a lot yeah. of really, really great got people. goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's been a lot of death. So late, it's just bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add, like, that's why the um, mental health stuff doesn't end when you finish treatment. When you're out of treatment, you're dealing with your friends who um, are getting re-diagnosed or um, are are passing away. um, And that never stops. You might be, like, 10 years out, and you still have friends in the community that might be going through things um, and you know, getting diagnosed with a different type of cancer. And yeah, that meant those mental hurdles never stop. I feel like in this like survivorship uh, life that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm grateful that my oncologist um, said to me, she's an Asian woman. And she said to me, uh, I want to know the good and the bad and the ugly, because for a long time, I was putting up a front with her because I felt that she saved my life and I wanted to have her know that I'm okay. But on the inside, I was not okay. I was dealing with depression. Um, I just had a close friend of mine die of um, triple negative breast cancer. um, And I wasn't okay. And I felt very alone in the pandemic. um, And I ended up telling her all of this. 
and you know she thankfully we have now more open communication um but um it made her realize because she always said to me like oh rush like whenever you come in you're always such a ray of sunshine i wanted her to know that i'm not always a ray of sunshine and there are clouds sometimes and sometimes the clouds stay there um but yeah i just wanted to add that people always say oh you're done with treatment yay and then they don't they don't support you afterwards i'm all three done. years out yeah mm -hmm. right i they think i think that's out. I think that's the brave part, honestly. People talk about how we're brave, but to continue to be active and to love within the breast cancer community, that takes bravery because we know we're going to lose people. You know, we know we're going to be re-traumatized. And that's where I see the bravery, not the cancer treatment part. That's just trying to stay alive. Yeah. Right? We don't have a choice yeah. on that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But to continue to be active within this community, um, it can be really hard. Like, yeah, yeah. it's, Mm -hmm. But people, it all. people like you, Ginny, who do it, this is just speaking, you're the first one I found, and I've told you this story before, when I was like Laya, desperately looking on Instagram or social media for someone who looked like me who's gone through it. Some of the ridiculous questions I had of all my fears, including things like, do Asians get curly hair when they lose their hair and it goes back? <laughs> Like, you know, just really everything, right? From ranging from all the decisions of what kind of mastectomy should I get to what is my hair going to look like? I was looking for anybody and I did luckily find Ginny and then I actually found Dr. Simra next. Um, but, you know, luckily I found you guys, right? But visibility is so important because as you, you had said, Ginny, the whole, what we look like, um, the model minority myth is other people projecting the fact that they think that we've got it all together. And here's Rushdie saying, right. we don't have it all together. And right. it's important for some of us, we don't all have to do it, but have some of us out there being visible and saying, look, this is what I look like and I'm struggling. This is what I look like and I can make a joke, mm -hmm. but I'm also dealing with some stuff. This is what I look like and this is my cancer experience. You know, yeah. and we have to get out there because there's gonna be people looking for us. And it's not just, them projecting the minority myth, model minority myth on us. It's also us and our families projecting it that we're, it's too shameful to share those things. Yeah. But it's not. It's not if we're really being truthful to ourselves and helping each mm -hmm. other, right? So I'm going to keep trying to get out there, you know, and maybe we Same should bring thing. back that hashtag of Asian breast cancer. Maybe that's what yeah. we need because there was nobody yeah. running it when I last looked two years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's true. I that started. Was, that was really well said, Jess. Thank you. Yeah, it was. I started yeah. the hashtag Taiwanese breast cancer because I only uh, know one other person that's Taiwanese with breast cancer. Oh, and I know a couple in our group. <laughs> oh, we okay. Well, then you're gonna have to introduce me. I mean, yeah, Peggy really. was one that I had invited to this conversation, but she was not available. So, um, and she's the only other Taiwanese person I know that, um, that was okay. diagnosed with breast cancer. That's so, the greatest power of social media, yeah. right? Like, yeah. look at look at the, this. The I blessing mean, behind it, not the curse. Yeah, like it's. I mean, there's a lot of yeah bad with social media, but like, and you guys probably have the same stories. Like, I can't even count the number of women now in the last. I guess it's been coming up on two years for me since my surgery. Um, two and a half years since I've been sharing my story, but like, I can't even tell you how many Indian women have reached out to me. Um, either with the diagnosis of cancer or talking about genetic mutations and saying like bluntly, like my family is not supporting me and I need someone to talk to. And just being able to do that because of social media has given That's, me so much purpose. That's huge. 
so yes, much purpose. Huge. Cause I remember yes. when I was 26, other than my mom, I didn't know anyone with a genetic mutation. I, I'm a, I was a doctor, but I'd never met an Indian 26 year old with a genetic mutation who was choosing to have, you know, surgeries. Like that was, I've never heard of that, you know? Mm -hmm. So this community is everything. Can I add something that uh, Jess had mentioned? You said something earlier about just seeing people who look like us. Um, one of the things I realized after being active like on and, and having this breast cancer community and not seeing us is my scars don't look like other people's scars. Like my doctor mm -hmm. told me my scars were gonna disappear within a year. I'm like, mm, they're still dark. Uh, <laughs> they're not, they haven't gone away yet. So like to see like Jenny, who you always show, you know, you're just so proud, flatty, showing your scars, like to see that. <laughs> For yeah, our listeners, so I much, just flashed everybody. So much joy. <laughs> my, my, my reconstruction scars don't look like most of the ones I see online. Yeah. I actually was, I have an interesting story. My radiation oncologist, um, he was a young white guy. Like I, I feel like he was a child. He was a young child. <laughs> he just looks so young. He's well, was really and when he's when we were doing all the prep, you know, he was talking about you know you can use this stuff on your skin and what's your skin going to look like, and I had all kinds of questions, and he made a a big point about talking about how my skin and how I tan and how I have more melanin and how that would impact what my radiation scars would look like. And I told him that I appreciated that. He's married to a Korean woman. So he understood oh, wow. like he, that, that's how he had that empathy and knew that 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 conversation might be important to me. And I really appreciated yeah. that. And, and people ask, like, why does it matter if your doctor is the same or a similar race to you? Well, it shouldn't matter, but it does because the only reason why he talked about it was because he's married to a Korean lady. If if you if you have an Asian oncologist or you're a black woman and you have a black oncologist, it's just there's it there's there's easier. a yeah, it's easier. There's bit. like a baseline. Well, also yeah. it's that they're they're not necessarily going to default that the white body is the norm. And that's Correct. all that I need. Yeah. I don't always need you to be from my experience. And I don't always need you to have experience with other people who look like me. It'll be ideal, but I don't need it. I just need you to not default to the white woman because yeah. that's not going to help me. And that's already what medicine is doing. So like, I also had a, a radiologist who was an Asian man who was very careful to talk about things that actually was based on tons of experience with lots of different races and different skin. And that was really helpful because he was honest about what could or couldn't happen. Uh, my medical oncologist, my main oncologist is a Korean woman who I love. Do I need to have an Asian doctor? No, but was it great? Yes, because she said things to me that I wouldn't have thought about. She said things like, you need to ask me questions. Don't be afraid. Don't try to be the good student and pet, uh, the teacher's pet and not ask those questions. It's okay to ask me all the questions. Just like how Vrishni was saying, you know, I want to hear the good and the bad. That's what your doctor told you, right? I want to hear everything. Yeah, yeah. And my doctor said that. Don't be the quiet Asian woman who's going to be too polite to not ask a question. And I said, okay, I'm in. You know, that was great. But just knowing to say that was wonderful. And to hear it from her the way she uh, resonated with me, you know, it's just so nice. So yeah, yeah. I just don't, don't default. I mean, it's great. Yeah. 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 It's like someone takes your hand. I love that hand. for you, Jess. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, well, we're over an hour now, but there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about that I always talk about with my Asian friends when we get together and it's food. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I had my, one of the ways that my mother shows support in all things is feeding me. Right. So yep. she would show up at my house with giant things of kimchi soup, like things like so much food. And she's just like, and then she'd come over and my mom's kind of a little bit judgy in a way. She was a big, very clean and I'm not very clean, but the nicest thing was she would come over and do a little bit of cleaning and not give me shit about it about how I wasn't cleaning stuff. So she would do like a vacuum for me or, or, you know, but mostly it was the food. And, and my favorite were all the soups that she would show up with. Like that was like, That's amazing. my mommy loves me. <laughs> yeah. My parents stayed with me. They came to quite a handful of, of chemo treatments. And at the time when I was living, I had, at, during my cancer, I, I got rid of everything that was negative And that included my partner at the time. So my parents came and like stayed with me and cooked for me and cleaned for me. And it was great. It was wonderful. We just like hung out on the couch and just did us for the whole time. And that, um, and financially too, you know, like I was like, give me, I'll give you money for all this food. And they're like, no, 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 no. And so like my mom would cook Filipino food all the time and which, you know, I can't cook. So, so I didn't think so that just kind of brought me back to like just home, you know, that Filipino food mm -hmm. to have that while you're sick. Yeah. Or my it's best like, friend was it's Filipino. Yeah. It's comfort. Yeah. My best friend was Filipino growing up. And I just remember the little egg rolls, the lumpia. <laughs> lumpia. Yeah. I could go for a yeah. plate right now. <laughs> um, Roshi, what about you? What were you force-fed during training? What were you force-fed? What were you force-fed? <laughs> Best question so, ever. <laughs> I love how you phrased it because, I, yeah, I felt force-fed. Uh, my mom uh, came to live in my apartment while I was in treatment, and she force-fed me kale, a lot of kale, so much kale. I can't eat kale now. So much <laughs> Why? Why the kale? Well, Why? She's like, she's like, Kale's good for your immune system. Eat the kale. Eat the kale. And I'm like, okay, the kale's not going to boost my white blood cells. I hope you know that. It's not something to you that will, not the kale. Um, but besides the kale, um, she would make me bami. Bami is the Surinamese uh, dish. It's a noodle dish, um, kind of like um, like stir fry uh, with chicken, veggies, um a little bit of sambal, but it couldn't be spicy because during chemo, I had a very sensitive stomach. Um, also, she would make uh, lamb curry, which even though that was really sensitive to my stomach, I would still suffer and eat it because I needed to eat that food. Um, I didn't care if I was in the bathroom for the next week. I just needed to eat that food. Worth it! Yeah. Uh, I yeah. love lamb curry. Yeah. And then but no one told me this, that I didn't know that you lose. I lost my, ta uh, my taste buds during chemo. Mm -hmm. And so when I discovered that I couldn't eat all this food, and I can eat all this food, but not taste it. I was sad. I was like, I was depressed because my love language. Um, if you come over, if you bring me food, I don't care what you did. Bring me food. And I would be happy. 
No flowers, just food. Just food. And I like what I love about like food in like in our own cultures is that it makes you just feel loved. It makes you feel Mm -hmm. warm. It makes you feel like your home, wherever your happy place is. um, It just makes you feel that way. So um, I did appreciate my mom being there. I did not appreciate the kale, but I appreciate the curry. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Dr. Simran? Yeah, I mean, I think the greatest silver lining of my parents' divorce is that, um, you know, ever, anytime I've ever needed my mom, she just like gets on a plane and comes over here. Um, She's in Canada. I live in Maryland now. Um, And so she, when I had my first baby, she was here for like six months. And then I had my second baby and then she was here for six months. And then even during the pandemic, like, you know, I, she's a two-time breast cancer survivor. Her her second cancer came back after 15 years. Um, mm. And so she was only a couple of years out from everything. And I, she still came down. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm the opposite of Roche. Like, give me all the kale. I love the kale. Like anything kale, I will eat it, um, <laughs> especially in a smoothie. So like, I love green smoothies. So for me, I remember being on my recliner after surgery and I ended up having um, a big complication. Um, I went flat after surgery, but like the next morning when I woke up, I had bilateral hematoma. So I had basically like blood bubbles. So it looked like I had B cups on both sides and I had dropped like five grams of blood. It was pretty bad. Um, So I had to go for emergency surgery. So I was in pretty rough shape when I got home. Um, and so I, I, I had drains and I had a hysterectomy, so I couldn't really do much for myself. So my mom, like sweet soul, she literally was coming up and down the stairs and like bringing me a plate of something every couple of hours. Um, but my go-to food is, I'll say it in, in Punjabi, is dal chawal, which is just like yellow lentil, uh, yellow lentils with rice. I, know what, I, know I love my mom's. Like it's just like the simplest <laughs> food, but it's like comfort food. Um, but my mom's like a chef. Like seriously, she she should have her own cooking show because she makes the best food ever. So my husband loves when she comes because he always gets. Where do you live Because I know my mom lives in Maryland. Oh, actually, we're moving to Bethesda. <laughs> We're moving. Oh, we're moving to Bethesda. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm in Maryland. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, where are you? Oh, White Plains meetups. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. Need to do bad yeah. Did you say White Plains? Yeah. White. Yeah, White Plains, Maryland. That's in like Southern Maryland. Southern Maryland. Yes. Oh, Charles County. Not... Yeah. Oh, well, I'm moving closer are... to you. Yeah. I'm in Baltimore right now. Okay. All right, oh. yeah, we have to do a meetup then. Yes, <laughs> I'm coming home. I'm coming back to the states. I'll pick you up. Okay. Yes, let's do it. I have not had a real in-person meeting with anybody. Like I've only ever met people in the virtual community. Like I've never actually yeah. met a breastie or a baddie in in real life. I don't, I don't even know how I would react. Real names. I don't even know a lot of people. Yeah, that's my problem too. I don't know people's <laughs> real names. Instagram handle. <laughs> Um, I need a really good green smoothie recipe where I can't taste the kale. So if you could <laughs> that would be great. Just add more pineapple, um, like add more tropical fruit. Like the more, if you, if, if you don't want to taste the greens, add more tropical fruit. That's how my kids will drink it. So, cause they won't eat salad. So I just give them green smoothies. Um, or if you don't 
or if you don't want to try the kale, just add something that's less potent if you still want the green, like spinach. I usually use spinach. Yeah, because you can't taste it. So that's, yeah. yeah. Or you could use like um, like mustard greens or collards or something like that. Kale is pretty potent. Um, yeah. So you need to add I've a never, lot of food. I've never had a, a yummy kale smoothie. <laughs> Maybe or try, add, try adding like date, <laughs> dates. Try adding dates or like oh. maple syrup. Like you can add something to oh, mellow it. Just sweeten it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Jess, what... What, what kinds of lovely things did your family bring you to eat? Well, it was a pandemic, so I couldn't see most of oh. them. And then we couldn't get groceries. I don't know if you guys remember oh. what that was like in your space too. Goodness. Right? It was that first month of March was hard. And then when it dragged yeah. on to April and May when I was in chemo, it, we were still struggling to get like an appointment time for the grocery store for pickup in your car, oh, much geez. less Instacart. Wow. I mean, it was yeah. difficult. So toilet people paper. were just cooking. Yeah, toilet paper was still a joke, but also true. Nobody had it. It was a weird time. Um, I live very close to my two sisters who are awesome. And luckily they did their best they could to pull out the freezers and cook stuff for me. Um, my favorite was uh, my one sister makes a chicken long rice. It's like a Hawaiian soup with clear glass noodles and chicken and ginger, Ooh. heavy ginger. So it doesn't have Sounds a ton of flavor, but it's, yeah, it's really good. So that was, that's probably one of my comforts. My real favorite though is Taco Bell. And <laughs> Mexican pizza's the back. The Mexican pizza just came back <laughs> because they took it away right before I started radiation. So I made it through chemo and ate Taco Bell way more than I should have. I made it through surgery and ate Taco Bell way more than I should have. And then in November 2020, they took away the Mexican pizza and ruined my life. So it's not bad. <laughs> no longer on the menu. Now, as of it t- was today, well, tomorrow it's officially back. Oh, today it's officially back today. So yeah. Why was that even a thought in their minds to take it I off the know, they're crazy. <laughs> Nobody I mean, has to do that. Sustainability no and no, the, yeah, that. no. So the truth is Taco Bell. <laughs> hey, that's, I, Love you know, it. those potato hey, like, tacos that they have, those spicy, spicy potato, potato ones, yeah, with the cheese. That's yeah. really good drunk food. It's good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> oh, but okay, it's because, good. you know, it's not just about the kale. It's about your comfort food and whatever that yep. thing is. Sometimes during chemo, you're lucky you can eat anything. It's just whatever that one thing is, just put it in you. Please Mm -hmm. just try to eat it, you know? So I was thrilled to eat anything I could eat. I struggled a lot with food. So yeah, yeah. that acid reflux. Everything just, you know, the nonstop diarrhea and constipation at the same time, how that's even possible. (laughs) I don't even know. I don't, I, I, it happens, but I don't understand how it happens. Yeah, it doesn't. But it does happen. It's the weirdest thing. And, you know, just yeah. don't imagine it. I'm sorry I brought it up. You know, that kind of thing. We're trying to talk about food here, Jeff. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but normally I'm a food person. So, yeah, I love hearing the stories of food is comfort. And if my mom were here, she would have definitely given me food. It was really, really hard to not be able to see her or have her. Um, I was in California and she was in Hawaii for the two years of the pandemic. So, yeah, no, none of that. But sisters they gave me something i love my sisters <laughs> that's good i just feel like culturally in within the asian culture mm-hmm. so many of our families show their love that way yeah with the food yeah, they may they not do. say i love you but they show up at your house they with do. a bowl of something or right? they would have yeah Bring you <laughs> <laughs> no, I, think about it. I don't know that my mom ever shows up at my house empty-handed she's like i went to costco yeah. and have too much blah 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 and so she brings it to us you know <laughs> so cute that is true 
Ginny and Shenrong, I think that for next May, um, you know, we need to do like a Asian recipes and foods for, you know, cancer, cancer care. We, we definitely need like a book because I yeah. love there is, dishes. There is an Asian um, cancer dietitian that I started following. Oh, um, she's yeah. got some good and interesting recipes, stuff that works for vegan and stuff that works for meat eaters as well. Um, and she's one of the non-fear based nutritionists out there as well, mm -hmm. where, yeah, you can eat the nice. sugar. It's okay. But you should also maybe eat a salad yeah. to go yeah. with it kind of thing. But she concentrates on Asian food in particular, which is really interesting. Like you can still eat your favorite ramen or, you know, chajamyang or your pancet or whatever it is. Um, and I'm going to put it in like, the, oh, okay. Oh, I just put, it. just put it in. Oh, you okay. should put it in, yeah. Um, I got so happy when I found her because before her, I was following um, a white dietitian um, who's also like non-fear based. And I liked her, but I was kind of confused on like my family eats a lot of rice and a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, um, curry and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, what about for me? Do I have to take all that stuff out of my diet? So I was very happy to find the Asian cancer dietitian because uh, she talks about everything. Um like just all different kinds of foods um, and what we can eat, what we can't eat, or what you want to buy at Nine Man Ranch. So I really liked her. That's awesome. Asian cancer dietitian. I'm gonna have to follow her. Yes. Mm -hmm. Plug too. for you. I think her name's yeah. Diane. Plug for you, Diane, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, Shonda, we haven't heard from you about foods, comfort foods. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I coming from the Hmong culture, a lot of stuff is boiled, so like definitely soups. Um, I'm so fortunate that during my recovery, I had both my sister, my mom, and my husband helping, trying to help take care of me. But also, I'm very stubborn and independent. And I remember my sister was trying to make egg rolls for us, and she is like one of the best ones that I know. Her egg rolls are delicious. And I was so tired of being waited on hand and foot that I told her, I want to help make the egg rolls. So my husband, who is white, he gets the job of peeling the egg roll wrappers to give to my sister so that she can roll because, you know, she rolls them nice and tight. And so I was so frustrated. I, I think I, I went literally stole the cilantro. So of course, you know, after your bilateral mastectomy, you have T-Rex arms. <laughs> T-Rex arms. But so I'm like, I want something to do. So I literally stole the cilantro and I'm sitting at the table and I'm picking off like the cilantro leaves. That was my contribution to the <laughs> There's a meme or a reel or something in there. I know it. Yes. So that was my contribution um, to that meal, but um, again, very fortunate to have you know to have my family here to, to feed me, you know, wait on me hand and foot. So. Nice. I think we're circled back around to uh, Shangrong. Uh, for me, when I had, um, I didn't go through chemo. Uh, I skipped chemo. I decided not to do it. Um, with my uncle type score was 24. So it was um, a gray zone for me. And doing all the research, I just felt that the, um, the, um, the side effects outweighed the benefits. So I decided to skip chemo and do radiation. Mm -hmm. So through radiation, 
Dunkin' Donuts was my my go-to <laughs> meal. The, the which I'm very upset now. They <laughs> they they um don't have the toasted coconut donut anymore. Oh That's man, what? Donut. That was my donut with medium hazelnut coffee with cream and sugar. And I had that every day for the five weeks I had radiation treatment. Um, I got that, you know, either before or after my treatment was done. And then I would go for a run because that was my thing. And that's what I do to, for my mental health is run. So, um, and I did my first marathon back in November of 2021. Yay! So, um, so I didn't have to feel guilty either. <laughs> but that was my thing. And then when I had reconstruction, I decided to do a deep flap. Um, I had a single mastectomy. So that one, I really needed help. So thank God my sister-in-law, uh, my husband is Black African. He's uh, Kenyan. So my sister-in-law came and stayed with us for a month. And Kenyan food is influenced a lot by Indian um, cuisine. So uh, she made food that had a lot of curry in it. Um, I had chapati um, as well. And that was, that was great. Um, th there's one thing I do want to share also is that with her, I had, she, she drove my, my boys to school because they didn't have the bus system where we live. And um, in Kenya, they, I always say they drive on the wrong side of the road, <laughs> you know, but and so and so um, when she would drive them, I would have to be in the car with her to remind her to stay on the right side of the road and not be on the left side of the road. <laughs> so that was one of my favorite memories when she was here um, helping out. <laughs> but that was Dunkin' Donuts and yes. the Kenyan food with yes. the, <laughs> was the best thing. And then. When I had my single mastectomy, we didn't have family that helped. So my sons made uh, fried eggs. That was their, their expertise. <laughs> they're very, if you ever Sweet. want a fried egg, they, they're, they're perfect. Very good perfect fried yeah, perfect. Eggs. And pancakes. Fried eggs and pancakes. Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds like a great breakfast. I, yeah. Lunch or We're dinner. Yes. Your house. yes. <laughs> I do like breakfast for dinner. Yes. Yeah. So very good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, we are getting up to about an hour and a half. Do we want to kind of wrap things up a little bit and see if anyone yes. has any um, final thoughts before we do a closing here? Um, Shangrong, you got any final thoughts for us? Um, well, my final thoughts, I'm and grateful to meet everyone here and um, to hear your stories. It's so important for us to amplify um, and support each other as um, Asian women. And um, so thank you for, for being here and, and showing up. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for proving that Asians do get breast cancer and Asians don't all look the same. Or sound the same, and that there's more than one. Like there are multiple countries in Asia. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to to share our stories as Asians to show that yes, Asians do get breast cancer. We do exist. Um, thank you, everyone, for being so open and honest and having 
such a wonderful conversation with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I'd love to do it again. I think once the podcast comes out, we can add everybody's social media handles as well. Um, and then, yeah, um, I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners as well for tuning in. Happy AAPI month. Um, I want to make sure that you like, share, subscribe, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever it is. Um, thank you again and have a great day. Thank or, you. Or night, thank you. depending on night. Or night. Or night, wherever you are in the world. Yes. <laughs> okay, and scene. This is another Baddie Creation brought to you by For the Rest of Us. Don't forget to subscribe to Batty to Batty wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at For the Breast of Us, on Twitter at The Breast of Us, and check us out online at breastofus.com. Thanks for listening.